Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church of Imperial Valley. We would love to help you plan your visit, so we encourage you to visit our website at www.cccciv.org for service times and our events calendar. Or get the app. You'll find the Christ Community Church IV mobile app in your app store for Apple or Android devices. The scripture also says this in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his love for us, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. What price was the father willing to pay? According to the father's wealth, he says, this is all I can give that will communicate my desire and my willingness to sacrifice. I give my son for you. I give my son for the bride. Let that sink in. You are the bride. He wanted to show you how much you meant to him. So he gave his son in your place so that you could understand love. It doesn't matter how your husband or your spouse, your wife treats you. You have a worth that is greater than that. It doesn't matter how your boss or your coworkers treat you. You have a worth that is greater than that. And God demonstrated that love to you. He proved it by praying this mohar in the Hebrew. He paid this price. Now, first off, it would be determined by the father's wealth. But secondly, if the family didn't have enough money, it could be determined by the groom's work. And check this out because we see this happening throughout the scriptures. Jacob had an eye for a woman named named Rachel, and he wanted to marry her so badly. So he said, I'll work. What's the price? The dad says, you have to work for seven years. Seven years? Seven years. I have to work for seven years for her, but he does it. And on the wedding day, the father tricks Jacob, and he ends up with the sister Leah first. Does I still really want to marry her? What can I do? Well, I guess if you work seven more years, you can have her. Fourteen years he works to gain her hand in marriage. The groom's work. In the book of Joshua, chapter 15, you can read it later, a man named Othiniel responds to the call that Joshua says, I want you to go and I need you to take the land in Anak, where there's giants, and whoever takes this city, I'm going to give him my daughter as his bride. And so he goes and he fights against giants and conquers this city, and he ends up with his daughter. Amazing things. Remember the story of Saul and David? What's the reward? You remember the reward for whoever could slay that giant Goliath? Well, he would get riches, he would be exempt from taxes, and he would get Saul's daughter. Now, here's the thing. In those texts, you had to work for the bride, or you had to go to war for the bride. Jesus did both. Jesus went to work for you. He left his throne in heaven, and he came and walked this earth for 33 years in human flesh so that you could see that he was willing to work for you. He went to war for you. Do you think that there wasn't a war going on in the Garden of Gethsemane and upon the cross as he's struggling? Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to have to endure this wrath, but I will if this is the only way that I can take the bride's hand. He goes to work, and he goes to war for each and every one of you. And so finally, you have the father's wealth, you have the groom's work, but that's not it. You also have the bride's worth. 
And this is where you might want to say, well, hold on just a second. This is where this whole picture breaks down for me because I don't view myself as very worthy of God's love. In the Eastern culture, there's this story where it's common that marriages are arranged. And the story is about a young girl. And she was not a very beautiful girl. She was actually very plain. And the father was worried that there would never be a suitor for her hand, never be someone that would come along and that would ask this young girl to be a bride one day. And so he struggles with this throughout his life, worrying and worrying there's never going to be someone who will come and will take my daughter as a bride. But one day a man comes into town and the young girl has grown and she's still kind of plain looking, but she catches the eye of this very wealthy man. And so word spreads that this man has a desire for this young woman as his bride. And so the father's excited. He's thinking, finally, someone is going to take my daughter and take her as his bride. And he's excited, saying, I wonder what he's going to offer. And he's just hoping for anything. And the man approaches, and he says, what I have to offer you for your daughter is six cows. Now, before you're offended, women, <laughs> this is the highest price that had ever been offered for any woman in this village. And the father's taken aback, and he just can't believe his good fortune. And so he takes the six cows, and he pledges his daughter as a wife to this rich man. And the rich man takes the daughter, and they go away. And years later... The rich man returns to the young girl's village, and now she's a grown woman, and she comes in at the side of her husband, and she walks in, and nobody recognizes her because of her great beauty. Finally, the truth comes out. They finally realize who she is, and they can't figure out what has changed in you. They ask her, why are you now so beautiful? And she says, because I finally found someone who found worth in me. Listen, you have such great worth in the eyes of God. And if you are not living according to that worth, you have to ask yourself why. You've been created in the image of God. And the enemy hates the fact that every time he looks at you, every time he sees you, he's reminded of that glory, that glory of God. And so that's why you struggle with sexual sin. And that's why you struggle with addiction. And that's why you struggle with telling the truth. Because anything that Satan can do to mar and destroy and corrupt and to ruin the image of God that you were created and he will do. Don't let him win. Start living according to your worth. You are worth more than that. You're worth more than living for the pleasure and gratification of this flesh. You're worth what Jesus was willing to pay, what God was willing to give. You're that six-cow woman. Start living like the six-cow woman. I think we should get bumper stickers made. I'm a six-cow woman. Or man, or man. So listen, there's this price that had to be paid. But secondly... There was a contract that had to be signed. So when this betrothal period would begin, there was a price that had to be agreed to, but there was a contract that had to be signed. That's what the new covenant is. Everyone hold your Bible up. I'm going to rock your world right now. Put it down. The Old Testament 
means old covenant. It's another way of saying old contract. The New Testament is the new covenant or a new contract. Now, in Jeremiah chapter 31, God says, I'm going to give a new covenant, a new contract with my people. It's not going to be a law that they're going to have to try to figure out. I'm going to write it on their hearts, and they're going to have it in their minds. They won't have to stop and to ask. They're going to know instinctively that this is the agreement that I have with them. Are you following me? He says, I'm going to give you this new covenant, this new contract. Now, this is why communion is so life-altering when you really grasp what it is. And it grieves my heart that maybe sometimes we approach the communion table and we don't place its great worth. We don't place any worth in what we're doing. It's just another motion that we're going through, just another part of our monthly routine. Well, listen to the, the beauty of the symbolism of communion. Because what Jesus says at that communion table is he's saying, I'm giving you a new covenant, a new contract, and I'm sealing it with my blood. I'm signing it. The signature is my blood. Now, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 26. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, he gave thanks, and he, he said to them, drink from it, all of you, for as you drink my blood, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This is the contract. Communion was the contract. A new contract. A new way. And that new contract isn't a contract of rules and regulations. It's a contract of grace. It's when God says, you are not worthy, but I'm going to give you all of this blessing anyway. All you have to do is approach me with faith. All you have to come to me is in faith. Now, not only was there a price to be paid and a contract to be signed, but there was a cup to be shared. And at this meeting, when the betrothal period would begin, there would be three cups set out. There would be a cup for the bride's father, a cup for the groom's father, and there was a cup that the groom himself had. Now, listen carefully, because this is awesome. In order for this betrothal period to begin, the groom and the fathers would all have to take a drink of the cup. But after the groom drinks from his cup, he would have to take his cup and extend that cup to the bride. And he would offer it to the bride to drink. And he would say to the bride, you are my special treasure. I treasure you above all else, basically. And if the bride received that cup and drank that cup, the betrothal period began. And they were officially bound together. In order for them to be separated, though they weren't yet wed, it would actually take a certificate of divorce in order for that to happen. All right, you following me? Now, in the Hebrew culture, at this point, the only one who could initiate a divorce was the groom. Listen to that. Once you receive the cup, there's no turning back. Your salvation is not up to you. It's up to God, and he's never going to cut ties with you. You can't initiate the divorce. Only the groom can, and the groom won't. You're saved by grace, and you're forever saved by grace. So the bride takes this cup, and she drinks this cup. And so what do we have here in the picture of communion? In the picture of communion, we have the bread, which represents the body of Christ, which represents 
the mahor, the price that was to be paid, and we have the cup, the blood, which represents the covenant. Do you see? This is all wedding. This is all a marriage picture. The price, the body, the covenant, the, the blood. It's all there, and that's why Jesus says, after they drink this, he says, I will never again drink from the cup until I come in my Father's kingdom, because after this cup was shared between this married couple, the couple would no longer drink until the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus says at that last supper, this is the last cup I drink, because I'm not going to drink again until I'm drinking with you in the kingdom. Isn't that amazing? Now, so this cup has to be shared, but a gift has to be given as well. And so at this point, the bride drinks of the cup. She says, yes, I'm agreeing to this marriage. Yes, we're now inseparable. And the groom would have to bestow upon the bride a gift. What do we exchange at weddings and at engagements? We exchange a ring. Isn't that correct? A ring. This says, I'm taken. I'm taken by you. I don't have a ring on because I was 140 pounds when I got married and it doesn't fit me anymore. But that's what the sign is. It's an outward sign. I'm taken. I am taken by my spouse. Jesus gave us a sign. He gave us a seal. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. What seal, what promise did Jesus give? He says this, don't be worried, don't be afraid. I'm going to my Father, and if I go to my Father, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and he's going to endue you with power from upon high. That is the sealing. The word seal means to take ownership of. It's a mark of ownership, and so that's what's exchanged the groom says to the bride, here, I'm giving you this gift as a pledge that you belong to me, but also a pledge that I am going to return for you. And the betrothal period would begin, and he would say to the bride, I'm now going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions, many insulas, many little rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you so. But now I'm going to prepare a place for you. And so it would be the groom's responsibility at that point to go back to his father's home. And in the Eastern culture, they would just build rooms on top of rooms. And the next room would be the next family. So the groom would go back to his father's home and begin constructing a home for him to bring his bride home to. My friends, that's the period that we're in today. Jesus is constructing a home for us right now. We're betrothed to him. We are pledged to him. He's given us the seal of his Holy Spirit. And right now, presently, as we speak, he is preparing a place for his church so that he can take us back there with him. That's what we're hoping for and waiting for. So this house had to be built. And he goes to prepare this place. Now here's the interesting thing is that the father of the groom would decide when the house was finished. See, the rabbis had determined that in order for this to work, that the home that the bride was going to had to be a nicer home than the one she was leaving. And so that's why Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the son, not the angels, only the father in heaven knows the hour of my return. Amen. 
Because it's the Father who says, the, the insula, the little room, your little mansion is ready. Go receive your bride. That's what we're waiting for today, my friends. Jesus is preparing a place for us. Now, we don't know the exact day or hour, but Jesus says, and the scripture says, that we should know the seasons. We should understand by what's happening around us. And in Matthew chapter 24, write that down and read that tonight. Jesus talks about wars and disease and earthquakes and great debauchery, how the world's moral compass will just decay and erode, and that is what's happening today. We have to recognize the signs and recognize the seasons because the groom is about to return. Now, as the groom would be preparing that place, the bride would come away and she would begin working on her wedding gown. And she would begin to wear a veil over her face that would signify to everyone that I'm taken by a man already. And she would begin to sew and piece together her wedding gown. And the fabric for that wedding gown would be provided for by the groom. The groom would give the young woman the material, the fabric, to weave that gown. Why? Because our righteousness is not good enough. We have to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ if we have any chance. Now, we're going to go now from this betrothal period to the wedding. And everyone would be excited because they would hear it's about time. We know, we recognize the seasons. We recognize that this is getting closer. And so everyone would be anticipating the groom's arrival. And so the bridal party would begin to gather at the bride's home. And what they would do on Wednesdays especially, because the courts opened on Thursdays, they would begin to light their lamps and put their lamps in a window, signifying which room the bride was in when the groom would come to receive her. Now, check this out. This is amazing. This is mind-blowing. This wedding in the Hebrew is called nisuin. Say that with me. Say nisuin. It literally means to carry off to catch up or to snatch away. This is a picture of the rapture. You remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says that in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we're all going to be snatched away. We're going to be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This wedding, the groom would come, and what would happen is the groom's best man would go throughout the town. He'd blow a trumpet saying, the groom is coming. Everyone would make ready. They would light their lamps and put them in the windows so that when the groom arrived, he'd know where to go. They would take the bride out and there would be a, a parade through the city where they would finally come to this thing called a hoopah. It's a huge canopy that represents God's glory. And under that canopy, the reading of their contract, their ketubah, that marriage contract, that covenant would be read. And after that was read, the groom would carry the bride off into the bridal chamber for the consummation of the wedding. So this nisuin, it represents the rapture, the carrying away of the bride into the bridal chamber. That's what we're waiting for. Revelation chapter 4. It's not here yet, but it's coming soon. Now, I'm thankful, very, very thankful that customs sometimes change because in these days, the entire wedding party, everyone who was invited to the wedding would wait outside the bridal chambers awaiting word that the woman was actually a virgin when they went into the chambers. And that would be declared by bringing out a white sheet and there would be blood on the sheet. Now talk about pressure, right? 
Everybody's outside waiting for this moment. And the groom would communicate to his best man, yes, she was a virgin. Now, that best man, the scripture says, is John the Baptist. Listen to what John the Baptist said in John chapter 3. He says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands to hear him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. The groom's best man was called the Shoshban. That's who John the Baptist says he was. I'm not the bridegroom, but I'm the guy waiting outside awaiting word. I'm the one blowing the trumpet saying, prepare the way of the Lord. All of this is wedding language. Now, you might be thinking, this is where the picture breaks down for me because I just don't view myself as being pure in the eyes of the Lord. I just don't see myself as being that person. Here's the hope that we have is that it's not based upon our blood. It's based upon his blood. The scripture says this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. It says that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Proverbs 10, 12 says that love covers a multitude of sins. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, there's this long list of sinners that Paul just talks about. He says, and such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. That it's his blood that washes us clean and makes us whole. Now, during this time, the wedding is consummated. Everyone's waiting outside for a word. The word comes back. The bride was a virgin. And for seven days, they would celebrate. And in form of celebration, they would bring whatever was requested by the bride during this time. And the bridegroom would wait upon the bride during these days, these seven days. This was as close as it got to a vacation for anyone during this time. For seven days, the wedding party waited hand and foot on the bride and the bridegroom. The bride was never seen during this time. She was in the bridal chamber the entire time, and the bridegroom waited upon her hand and foot, bringing in whatever was given by the people outside. That's what happens during the seven years of tribulation. The bride is in heaven, and Jesus, our bridegroom, is tending to the church, tending to the bride. The bride isn't seen. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12. He said, blessed are those servants whom the master when he comes will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you, he will gird himself and he will sit down to eat and will come and serve them. He's talking about this time, this seven, this seven day period where the bridegroom would come in and would sit down and would serve the bride for seven days. And in Revelation, we have a seven year period where Jesus is tending to the bride. Are you following me? Amen. Now, at the end of those seven days, the bride and the bridegroom would come out of the bridal chamber to a ruckus applause, and everyone would be screaming and yelling and hollering and praising this couple. And guess what we see right here in Revelation chapter 19? We see the married couple, the bride and the bridegroom coming back onto the scene. They've been absent for seven years, but they're coming back and all of heaven joins in a chorus, joins in worship, joins in praise because this is the moment. This is the feast. This is what everything has been culminating towards and leading up to. This is the moment of all moments. And so they would arrive, come out of that bridal chamber and they would go forth and they would have the marriage supper 
and they would celebrate with everyone there. This is the first time the bride would enjoy everyone's company. That's what we're reading here in Revelation chapter 19. The bride is coming forth. The marriage supper of the Lamb is ready. They're ready to come forth together. They're ready to walk forth and to be announced and to say, Jesus, for him to say, here I am with my bride. And Jesus wants to know you in this way. Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church in Imperial Valley. Christ Community Church has campuses in El Centro, Calexico, and Brawley with services in English and in Spanish. Your kids are going to love our kids' church. Plus, we have a lively youth ministry and young adults group. You're welcome to call the church office at 760-337-9400 with your questions. Or leave us a message on the Christ Community Church IV mobile app, the cccivy.org website, or direct message us on social media. We are really looking forward to meeting you. So again, the website is www.cccivy.org or call 760-337-9400 so we can plan your visit.